Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundswell podcast. Today, I am so excited to be speaking with Dr. Erica Holloman-Hill, who is the CEO and founder of Aika Solutions, um, the vision of which is a comprehensive and holistic perspective that allows for a more complete understanding between the lived experiences of individuals within frontline communities and the summary statistics and data often used to define them. So, so excited to be here with you today, Dr. E. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Nora, for having me. This is very exciting. In reading your bio and obviously getting to know you through these events, I know you started off with a background in science, and I'm aware that you got your bachelor's in marine and environmental science from Hampton University. So shout out the HBCUs. Shout out to the HBCUs. You know, speaking on that, what was your journey into the environmental justice movement? Wow. You know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty, And so now having a little age and years being able to look back, I didn't realize that I was birthed into it in terms of the environmental justice movement just really being an extension of the civil rights movement of which my parents were born into, Jim Crow, my grandmother, you know, and a further extension of Uh, the reality for some of us in terms of segregation here in this country. And so for me, one, I always wanted to be a scientist, which was interesting being a young African-American woman here in Atlanta. But, you know, again, going back, who knew as we think about hidden figures and the number of amazing African-American scientists that really helped to move this country. And so wanting to be a scientist, my mother had the wherewithal to, one, support that dream and not kill it, um, but also being very clear about providing a nurturing space when I was coming back home in terms of venting frustrations of You know, I raised my hand several times, but the teacher never called on me. Or I'm tired of being the only one in this particular class, right? Um, And with that strong foundation and development, really, um, and I say development in terms of placing me in the various enrichment summer programs or programs in general to just nurture that. Um, desire to be a scientist and be curious about the world within. Again, being able to, to, to nurture that desire brought me to my sophomore year in high school when my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so my grandmother and mother are from Dalton, Georgia. And if anybody who had carpet, I would say pre-1980s, the majority of carpet was manufactured in Dalton. And so as my mother began to battle breast cancer around 92, 93, and the technologies and things were very different than now, um, we began, and I say we, her and I, kind of exploring was there any connection between the environmental toxicity of manufacturing and what she was experiencing because she would talk about um, growing up and sometimes playing in the back creeks of certain places and there being various colors kind of like this rainbow creek and so wanting to kind of look at 
cancer and understand that nuance. I started off at Hampton as a molecular biology major, but being a country girl, kind of from Dalton, but also from Atlanta and just loving nature. And so um, having the opportunity to go camping, I learned about this very small department on the waterfront of Hampton University, the real HU, I'm sorry, <laughs> where we, uh, where I discovered earth system science through marine and environmental science. Um, that was the same summer that I tragically lost my mother, the same day that Princess Di passed on August 30th, 1997. That summer was a very, I would say, intentional summer outside of my control. Um, but the path from switching the major, the strong foundation, not only in the love of science, but also the confidence to move forward in this field after my mother passed, kind of understanding that legacy, I didn't look back. And when we think about the environmental justice movement, so much of it goes back to our environment. And I'll start with kind of now even how I define the environment, not just to be the natural, right? That's part of it, the natural environment. I recently learned through my work with Wawa, there's also, you know, the reality of this built environment. But within that, then, our cultural, social, political, and economic environment. And it's that collective, cumulative reality of our communities and our lived experiences in terms of how we now experience environment. And depending upon who you are and where you are, your environmental experiences can be very different. But what we are understanding is that the environment has a huge impact on now even biological factors such as life expectancy, where now we're living in a time where your zip code is more of a predetermining factor of one's life expectancy outcomes. Not even realizing the connection um, growing up, I would spend my childhood summers in Brunswick. And if you're familiar with the coastal area of Brunswick, the first thing you notice is the smell, right? From the paper mill to the numerous industrial facilities, um, but not even understanding that, that in that yearly summer excursion, I was being groomed through a political lens in terms of understanding what it means for um, race and the sightings of industrial facilities to be tightly correlated. From that, kind of to where we are now, um, I've been blessed to have been under the tutelage of environmental leaders and movers such as Dr. Mildred McLean or Mama Bahati here um, in Georgia, uh, Reverend Zach Lyde, uh, remembering uh, Connie Tucker here in Georgia that kind of moved the environmental justice movement here in Georgia um, to the broader EJ scope of some of those that were there in the beginning, Vernice Miller-Travis, 
um, Miss Peggy Shepard. And so just really grateful for this path, but being able to now bring the scientific knowledge and understanding and be able to do that translation. Wow, absolutely. I think everything you just said just now was so powerful and throughout your story, all I was hearing out of that was legacy and, you know, the deep roots of the intertwinement of racial justice and environmental justice. I really appreciate you sharing your story and it's amazing that you were uh, knowledge and passion for science was nurtured to the point where you can now take your knowledge and your lived experience to, to not only be an advocate, but continue to blaze the trail for environmental justice with the support of the elders and the mothers of the movement. No, thank you, you know, and just even reflecting on what was said, you know, ordered steps. I am a strong believer, you know, my life experiences has taught me the importance of ordered steps, both those that we create and those that we have no hand in in, in moving. So the philosophy of AICA Solutions is to provide environmental strategies today that sustain whole communities tomorrow. Um, Could you tell me more about the work that AICA does? So at the core, it is growing, and I I think in terms of research, right, where you set forth a path of, of questions, you you have some experimentations, you gather some knowledge, you draw some some conclusions, and you're able to, to readjust. And so at the core, IECA Solutions is flexible, and um, our processes are iterative in that these strategies change from day-to-day, community-to-community, and at its core, again, understanding how we define environment to be or environmental um, that allows us to look at, and I'll give an example, lead exposure on the west side of Atlanta correlated with the new data that was released in November of last year from the Atlanta Wealth Initiative that highlights the, the difference in median wealth income between African-Americans and whites in Atlanta is 46%, right? And so how do we understand that impact together allows us to think now around the wholeness or the cumulative way that we, we thrive and survive in communities. And I say thrive because that's what I personally am, am, am shifting my generation, and I say my generation, thinking of my young four sons and, and the limited time that we have in terms of just life this one moment, moving in a way that not only understands the pieces, but how the pieces fit together for the whole. Um, and so with that, how do we hold the research that we do? And when we think in terms of research, when we think in terms of science, it can be very Western. Um, But we also understand as we decolonize science that in the context of a global understanding, an indigenous understanding, there is this not so much linear way, but circular way of, of being. And we can think now in terms of the impacts of climate change, these feedback loops and things. And so again, the research that we do isn't extractive. Current research practices tend to be very extractive. And so how do we kind of move to a more regenerative, restorative research approach, R3. It also involves being able to help all communities have the most scientifically sound information from which then to make well-informed decisions. As my grandmother says, you can't do what you don't know, 
right? And no shame in not knowing, but the shame comes if you aren't willing to find out and see. Definitely. And I love how you mentioned the westernized approach to research. The western values of individualism obviously have trickled down into our research, into policy making. And I think taking a step back and having a holistic view of doing this research and and having data ownership from people who have lived in this community, who are trusted in this community, and being able to acknowledge how all of the aspects of environment, as you mentioned, the socioeconomic factors of the environment, all the different layers and intersections that kind of influence why why things are the way that they are in the community and a really innovative approach that Aika Solutions and yourself are taking to be able to present that in a holistic way. No, thank you. And I think it's just a reflection of my personal lived experience um, and having an understanding of how science and data is collected and being able to see myself in the same data set that many of my colleagues don't even see me in that same data set and having to remind all of us, you know, um, we all are a part of a data set, right? And understanding how our lived experiences show up in data, for me, also goes back to at the core of our humanity, right? Not all of us have our birth given right to be a part of this circle of humanity, right? And when we think in terms of race not being biologically real, but in the context of the social environment that we've now created race, it has very real biological impact. And so it's very hard in this day and age to separate the two because of the close now proximity to a lot of the things that are at the core of the environmental injustices, the way in which we've now been socialized and that socialization and having impact of where industry is located, where hazardous waste facilities are located, how young men are viewed as young adults way before their age. And so, again, in this day and age, even though there's this understanding that racist is not real in the, in the biological sense, in this day and age, it has really real social implications. Definitely. Also, it's really important to, you know, see the story behind the data. As you mentioned before, although race is a social construct, the consequences are very tangible because of that. And I think, you know, a lot of times the people will view the black community as a monolith and that can get translated down into the data and, you know, hearing a lot of conversations from the roundtable event that we recently organized together in Atlanta, a lot of people were saying people will come in and do research and be like, okay, well, um, a a bunch of these houses in this community have heightened lead levels. And then you talk to the community, we could have told you that ourselves, like, there's one thing to report that this is happening, but I think, you know, it's so important to take the next step and understand that these are not just numbers. These are individual people with individual stories and that it it can't just kind of be a Band-Aid solution. At the core, this is what diversity and thought is about, right? And why diversity and thought is so critical in this day and age and an understanding that it's not just about having the right complexion in the room, right? Because we understand, again, Race is a a social construct, but has serious implications. It's more around a diversity of thought because of our lived experiences. I'm able 
to bring a different lived experience that to the point with the technical expertise, how do we move beyond a very systematic way that science has been done, which is to talk about the problem, plan for the problem, provide recommendations for the problem, but not actually then implement solutions, right? And so how do we shift? And this gets back at how do you make research regenerative, more restorative? Um, it's focusing on the solutions and the innovation that comes out of the research and not to keep it in lock and key in uh, peer-reviewed journals or, you know, just another method of academicians or even now in this space of uh, many larger nonprofits getting into research, um, following down that same kind of systematic way of doing research. Agreed. So moving on, so on your website, um, on AICA Solutions, you are quoted saying, um, do we want to be a part of our own extinction? That's what we are talking about when we are talking about climate change. What do you think needs to happen now to address climate change in a sustainable, equitable, and as you would say, a restorative way? Uh, as an earth system scientist, I would say there needs to be baseline education to how this planet that holds us all and the delicate life that goes beyond just our humanity exists. Um, starting with kind of shifting the language. Climate change has now become so politicized, but the reality that we are talking about are changes in Earth's climate. You understand? And understanding how we got here, what the feedback loop mechanisms are, and it doesn't have to be in the nuances, right? But just understanding fundamentally how this planet works. And it doesn't have to again, go down to the nuances that the siloedness can take you in, but if we stay broad enough, we can explain changes in the Earth's climate at a second grade level, which is where we kind of first begin understanding Earth's science. And so for, again, for me, I would say the core of how we do that, we have to begin to have broad educational understandings of how this planet works. That's real. Um, I think, you know, with issues such as climate change, especially since it's so politicized, I think, um, you know, people are coming from various different standpoints with we need to do this, this and that. But I think an important thing, with, which is what you said, is that there needs to be a baseline scientific understanding and it doesn't have to be so technical about what is going on because if we generally as a population can accept that there will be more of a push to actually start addressing this in a sustainable way many of us through our life experience have seen shifts just in experiences and how the earth's climate has changed but now understanding the reasoning behind it we have to now also put in power dynamics who's in control, what policies are being implemented when we value capital and commerce over life and people. You know, so these become fundamental questions of our own humanity. And if there's already not an equitable space in the circle of humanity, which is everyone's birthright, then it's already half skewed in terms of us moving collectively together. It was really great recently to work with you to organize the Community Resilience, Entrepreneurship and Justice 40 Initiative roundtable discussion um, in Atlanta, where we welcomed 
chair of the White House Council on Environmental Quality, Brenda Mallory. Uh, I feel like the event was a great opportunity to highlight the thriving Atlanta clean energy ecosystem and offer an opportunity to hear from those who are pioneering the clean energy future for Atlanta and Georgia. And you played a large role in making sure that many of these local leaders were present and had a seat at the table. Can, can you speak to the importance of having these perspectives at the forefront of the conversation? I'll go back in terms of how do we move from planning to implementation. And in terms of understanding that there are other technical experts with degrees who look like me, who are doing this work, who've been doing this work, who've just not had an opportunity, right? Meaning, just because the money stopped, does the work stop? Nope. And so we've always found a way, right, to be innovative and create solutions. What you saw at that event were really you all coming into our world to, to, to even know that, wow, is this many of you all here with the technical expertise, the degrees, and already the projects in motion, right? That was just an opportunity to bring light to a lot of the innovation, the solutions, the business entities, uh, and the community organizations that are already doing this work. Definitely. And it, it was fantastic to see the people in the community who have been here and been doing this with or without resources and just giving everyone an opportunity to connect and learn about, you know, the federal incentives that are coming down that, you know, continue to support the great work that's already being done and will continue to be done in Atlanta. Yeah, no. And again, kind of that voice at the table brings already innovation, brings already solutions that have been tried or solutions that need to be tested or as we say prototyped, right, or piloted to be able to really not convince us, but convince others that this approach works. Definitely. And it is so important um, to see that these are tangible solutions that are happening. And if this is already working with what we have now, the, the sky is the limit if these can continue to be supported at the federal level. And, you know, that, that brings me to my next question. With federal incentives such as the direct pay provision of the Inflation Reduction Act, allowing for community-owned clean energy projects, this is obviously an exciting time for addressing energy burden and energy opportunity in frontline communities. How do we make sure that organizations, community leaders, local entrepreneurs are able to take advantage of these incentives and, as you said, move into that implementation stage? Stop placing the burden on these already burdened organizations to figure out how to find and properly go through the myriad of paperwork. It's not difficult, but it's still paperwork, right? In order to capture that incentive, meaning the one-stop shops. We talk about it, 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 right? We know that it's there. Where do you start? What's step two? What's step three? Who's going to hold my hand until it's completed? Or again, is that burden placed on the already overburdened? Two, in the name of the incentive being created for you, now being used by larger, I would say, community-based 
organizations that have the capacity and the ability to really capture that. And I say again, community-based, because in this moment of disadvantaged community DAX, we have organizations that can be community-based, but not community-driven or community-led. And I want to be clear in terms of uh, nonprofits, CDFIs, solar entities, you name it, that are kind of popping up in this federal moment, really reaching for community um, because of how this federal moment has been created in our name. And I say our, uh, those who have been fighting for environmental justice, uh, for climate justice, for energy justice. So interesting. That's such an important distinction that you made of organizations that are community-based and then there are organizations that are of the community. Um, there's a lack in terms of capacity building and technical assistance to actually get those money to the organizations that need and deserve it. Yeah, no, most definitely. Speaking of organizations of the community, in addition to your leadership at Aika Solutions, you work closely with the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance who prioritize environmental stewardship, education, and justice. How can they and other organizations like them serve as a model for stewarding healthy environments and communities? I think it's not anything new, you know. Uh, when we think in terms of Wawa, and it being an African-American-led organization, and now we understand culturally um, our connection to nature, our connection to the land, our stewardship of it, um, it's not far-fetched. And so um, in this space and age now of land recognition, the people recognition, um, how do we even move beyond land acknowledgments to land reclamation in terms of even the indigenous people who stewarded this space. And so I would say it's about, again, going back to understanding it's only one planet. I completely agree. What have been your key takeaways from your work in the environmental justice movement and what excites you as you look towards the future? My key takeaways is that still not all of humanity um, has been gifted our birthright to that circle globally um, because of a very real period of history that we are still dealing with in terms of colonization and the impact of process. The other thing I would take away is the resiliency of folks who have not been granted access to that birth-given right of humanity and the way that we understand and hold that it is our birthright and that no man can take that from us. Hence, uh, my grandmother and mother were able to come through Jim Crow civil rights with with still holding our heads high and being able to have hope and understand that there's still future and and pour into that next generation. Um, Understanding that indigenous concept of you plan for seven generations forward, right? And I also remind folks, well, you are someone's seventh generation. And so with that, what responsibility are you holding in this right now moment of you being someone's seventh generation to put forth seven generations forward? Wow, that that is definitely some food for thought. I relate to, to a lot of what you said on the legacy piece. 
piece. I'm, you know, I'm fortunate to be nurtured in that from a young age. My my father is an immigrant from Nigeria, and he was born the year that Nigeria was considered independent from colonization. So born into that. And then again, also seeing the effects of environmental racism and exploitation of his ancestral land kind of brought him into that movement against fighting against big oil. So I think, you know, just growing up with that knowledge, there was there was no other path I really thought I could take then to, you know, continue to to work and, and fight against environmental injustices in my community and beyond, and also just continuing to keep that global lens. Because as you said before, determining on where you're born, who you're born into, you may not have that that right to be in that inner humanity. And, you know, that's, that's just something that we have to continue to reckon with and, you know, try and dismantle, so. You know, hearing what you just stated as you were speaking, it just reminded me um, of what I stated earlier about ordered steps, right? Those that are intentionally the ones that we create and those that we have no hand in. My grandmama calls it joy. Don't let nobody take your joy, baby. Amen. Well, um, on that note, I think that that's a beautiful note to conclude it on. And again, I want to thank you so much, Dr. E. It's just been an honor, even if virtually, to to hold and share this space with you. Um, and I just look forward to continue to learn from you. And I know that whoever is listening will just benefit so much from this conversation. So thank you so much. No, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure.